This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. I hope you've been having a good week. I hope you guys have been taking care of yourselves. So, this week I am really excited. I had a conversation with Dr. Stephen Hussey, and we talked about everything that's related to heart health. He just came out with a book not too long ago called Understanding the Heart Uncommon Insights into Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ. So, heart disease is the number one killer now、um, in our modern world, and we just talk about What causes heart disease? What are some of the toxins? And what we can really do about heart health?、Uh, we talk through some of the ways that we can have、um, good heart health, but then we also talk about how it's really more than just diet and how stress and other things are so important、um, in managing because it actually can affect the heart. So, yes, somebody that is a meat based person can actually have a heart attack or can、um, that eats keto or that removes carbohydrates. So, it's Really important to manage diet, but there are other areas that we also need to talk about. In his book, at the end, he wrote an afterword and he shared with me kind of what happened. But this is a very powerful book. You guys want to check it out, especially before if it gets published and it's kind of off the market for a little bit. You want to check it out because this book has so many tips and it kind of wakens you up as to what can cause heart disease and what. We may need to be doing in our lives other than diet that may, we may need to change to really have good heart health.、Uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey is such a genuine individual.、Um, he's really out here to help people, and I hope that you guys can see it in our conversation. And I really was able to see it offline with him. So I hope you guys learn a thing or two about heart health and just. Manage stress and just take care of yourself. So let's get right into this. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy, and I am very excited. Today I have with me Dr. Hussey. He just wrote a book, and we are going to talk about all things、uh, related to the heart. So, Dr. Hussey, thank you for joining me today.、Um, if you could tell a little bit about yourself to the people that are listening and watching. So, I'm a, a you know, by trade, I guess, chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner. Um, but I'm really just interested in health from any aspect. No, no necessarily, I don't necessarily like an, an ideology or a, 
or a type of medicine to, to look at, you know, I just I'm interested in health. Um, and that's mainly because of my own health journey. Um, and, Cause when I was a kid, I had a lot of um, what we would call inflammatory health conditions um, from, you know, chronic hives to asthma, to allergies, to IBS, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and ultimately ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes from that inflammation, um, which is where my, my body kind of got confused and attacked a certain tissue in my body, the pancreas, and now I don't make insulin. Um, and so that kind of, you know, threw me into Western medicine. My parents and I were reliant on, on that to, to help manage these conditions. Um, but it wasn't until uh, college when I started figuring out that, you know, the way I live my life, uh, like what I ate and, and managed stress and that kind of stuff had a direct impact on how well I can manage these conditions. And so um, uh, I got rid of all those inflammatory conditions that I had uh, by changing my lifestyle, uh, except for type one diabetes, because it's kind of collateral damage from, from what happened. Um, and so, yeah, since I'm type one diabetic, um, I've been told my whole life that I'm predisposed to heart disease. And so every time I learned anything about it or heard anything about it, my ears perked up and I've just uh, accumulated a lot of information and I started sharing it and, and people seem to like it. So I decided to write a book and, and here we are. That's amazing. Um, I'm so interested. I've never actually t- um, had an interview with the type one diabetic. I know that there are some type one diabetics in the keto carnivore community. So, you know, what diet were you recommended? And then what did you kind of fall on to actually lose, um, reduce a lot of the inflammation? Yeah. So uh, originally I was told to eat whatever I wanted. And just, oh, wow. if, you know, depending on what I ate to give more insulin if I needed it, you know. So I remember having a, I was given a little booklet that basically showed me the amount of carbohydrates in every single fast food that was available, every single fast food restaurant there was. So it was like, it's okay to go to these fast food restaurants, just make sure you give yourself insulin for it, it was basically the message I was getting. Wow. Um, and yeah, so kind of crazy when I look back on it now. And, uh, and so then, yeah, I mean, I, I started figuring out that you know, if I change my diet, you know, maybe less carbohydrates or just more whole foods, it was easier to manage things. And it was definitely a trial and error process. Like when I first got started, I had no idea what I was doing really. Um, and so, uh, yeah, over time, it ended up being more like of a, a paleo diet. Um, and then it, it evolved more into like low carb, um, which became really easy to control blood sugars um, based on everything I had experienced before. Um, and then, you know, recently, I'd say the past, um, uh, well, about six months ago was the end of when I did like a carnivore diet. Um, and I did that for about two years and I saw, uh, definite changes in my health that I'd never seen with any other diet before with that. Um, and I'm now back eating some plants, but still very animal based, um, because that seems to work best for me. And, you know, my, my, uh, inflammation is, is very low. Um, blood sugars are very easy to, to, um, control, even though I still need insulin with that type of diet. It's just, I, they're still much easier to control and I use way less, um, insulin. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of what I settled down and it's, it's really working for me. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Um, you know, there's a lot of chatter in the community that, um, there's this thought where basically we need insulin to get then, um, so we shouldn't have too low of insulin because that will affect cells getting some of the, you know, sugars or some of the stuff that needs to kind of happen for hormonal health, thyroid, for even um, our heart health. So, you know, what do you say to that? I mean, do we need carbs for insulin to kind of normalize and it not be too low so that we can actually properly function? Um, 
I, I would say no, um, just based on the, the very fact that myself, like when I have no a no carbohydrate diet, absolutely zero carbohydrates, I still need to give myself insulin. Um, you know, it's not in the same amounts and it's definitely not, uh, I still, I have to time it differently because carbohydrates will spike things sooner rather than proteins will, will do it later. Um, but I still need insulin. So that just tells me that even someone who's not type one diabetic, if you're eating no carbohydrates, your body is still secreting insulin to help regulate blood sugar. So that's going to act as like that signaling molecule, um, that, that you need. But, um, people, um, you know, they, they, they know that insulin is responsible for, you know, taking glucose and putting it into a cell, but it actually has lots of different functions. Um, you know, it signals the immune system, signals from thyroid, all kinds of stuff. Um, but even before, um, or I guess maybe at the same time it does that kind of stuff, um, it doesn't, like if blood sugar starts to go up, you know, insulin when it's secreted at the local level of the pancreas, it tells glucagon to shut down, um, which stops the body from, you know, potentially making or mobilizing things that can become glucose. Uh, and so then when it gets to the level of the liver, it tells the liver to stop making glucose um, from those things that were broken down. And then when it gets to the tissues, it um, it tells the tissues to stop breaking down like fats and proteins and things that would eventually become glucose. And so it's, it's not necessarily always just taking glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cell. It's stopping this whole process of making more glucose. And so, and then if at that point, if it's not enough to make blood sugar normal, then it takes the glucose and puts it into cells. So it's kind of got this stepwise process. And so that kind of stuff could be happening, um, you know, even if blood sugar doesn't go up, um, all that stuff's happening in the background to keep it from not going up. And then, you know, if it's still up, then the insulin will take care of it. But um, so insulin's a, a, you know, very kind of complex hormone. Um, and it's, it's more than just taking that sugar out of the, the bloodstream. Yeah, it's funny because, um, I mean, I'm relatively new to the nutrition space. I mean, I've definitely been in it for several years now, but I find that people grasp onto certain technical facts in a nutrition without like explaining all the kind of, you know, like the complexities you just talked about. And then the one fact is technically true. And then that's what people hold on to then say, therefore you need sugar, therefore you need carbs, or therefore you need to do X, Y, Z. And it's really interesting because the layman will then see that and say, oh my gosh, right, I need to do this and this based on this factual statement. Um, So thank you for explaining. I think it's a lot more complex than that. And I don't think the answer is always just you need to eat carbs to regulate everything else. Because I always say a paleo diet is close to what we eat um, in the ideal kind of adding vegetables and fruits. And there are still a lot of people that have thyroid issues and hormone issues on that diet. So I don't think it's just that we're missing plants. I think it's a lot more than that. Um, So you mentioned that uh, you were, you know, when you were diagnosed with type one diabetes, then you were basically said there is a risk of heart disease. So what is that? Right. So for the people listening and watching, why why is that if you're diabetic, the comorbidity is um, often, t- or, you know, with heart disease, the comorbidity is oftentimes diabetes. Like, why does that happen? Yeah. So, you know, I was curious about this as well when I, I would go into doctor's offices as a kid and I'd see all the posters on the wall that said, you know, you have two to four times increased risk and you could go, you know, blind, you could, you know, get your feet amputated, all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, well, what is that? So like every doctor I went to, I'd always ask them. And they said it was because of damage to the, the cardiovascular system or damage to the, the, the vessels, you know, the, the arteries, especially the small ones, the capillaries. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, how do I, how do I prevent that? You know? 
And, you know, over time I, I would learn, I learned that, you know, with higher blood sugars over time, which no matter how hard I try, my blood sugars will never be as normal as someone who's not type one um, and is a, is an insulin sensitive, you know, normal person, I would say. And so um, the, the increased risk for me, um, especially if it's uncontrolled, is that um, there'll be extra damage done by having too much glucose in the blood. Uh, and that damage, it starts damaging the uh, red blood cells first. Um, and that's why we can tell from a hemoglobin A1C how high someone's blood sugar has been over the last you know, three, four months or so, um, because the amount of damage done to red blood cells will show up and we can count the percentage and that gives you your A1C. Um, and, but that damage doesn't, it's not just confined to the red blood cells. You know, you can get, um, overly, things can get overly saturated with glucose, um, lots of tissues in the body. So specifically the arteries. Um, but this, this brings us to a topic though, that I think is very important for discussing heart disease because lots of times it's very focused on cholesterol and LDL. And, and everybody says that that's the thing that causes damage to the arteries and, um, and, and, uh, creates atherosclerosis. Um, however, I think that is completely not true and that there's, there has to be some sort of um, uh, prerequisite to that for the body to deposit cholesterol in an artery. And that prerequisite is um, inflammation, damage to the lining of an artery. It's oxidative stress that can contribute to that damage to the lining of an artery. Um, and having higher blood sugars over time for long periods of time uh, is one of those things that can cause that inflammation and oxidative stress. But there are many things that can do that, um, like endotoxemia, um, just um, uh, uh, stress, um, toxin exposure, um, all kinds of things that people don't usually talk about when it comes specifically to heart disease that really need to be, uh, the attention needs to be drawn to. Um, and so, you know, having higher blood sugars and me being type one, is just one of those things that can contribute to that. And that's why, um, especially in the, the micro vessels, the, the capillaries, um, we can get damaged and then have, have issues, issues from that. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. So if you, if someone were to be non-diabetic, uh, balance their blood sugars, but then have issues from endotoxemia, those toxins, are you saying that they could still have heart disease? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Do you want to, yeah. you know, what is endotoxemia? Can you talk about yeah. a little bit about these um, toxins? Like, what does that mean? You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, like I said, there's multiple things that can contribute to the state of oxidative stress or inflammation in our body. Um, endotoxemia is is um is the presence of what we call gram negative bacteria in the in the bloodstream which really shouldn't be there especially in high amounts um and this usually comes from and th these things act like um they kind of act like free radicals so they just cause damage to tissue they steal electrons which has this chain reaction that causes this damage um and um that usually comes from two two main sources well it's kind of the same source but i consider it two uh, because it's all the digestive tract. And if you consider the mouth part of the digestive tract, which it is, um, then the health of the mouth or our dental health is one, um, uh, one area that these endotoxins can come from. Because if our mouth is unhealthy um, and we have you know, poor gum health, 
uh, like gingivitis and things, or we have um, lots of root canals, or we've had teeth pulled that weren't cleaned out properly, that can lead to this gram-negative bacteria that can drain into the tissues and then the bloodstream. Um, but the other more popular one, it's also part of the um, uh, uh, GI system, is the gut and having a healthy gut. Because if you have leaky gut, then those bacteria that are supposed to be in the gut and stay in the gut can leak into the bloodstream. And we get the, you know, the LPS, the lipopolysaccharide, you know, um, endotoxins in there. And, uh, and so those are the two main sources um, that, uh, where we get endotoxins from. So um, yes, the health of the mouth is very relevant to the health of the arteries and, and whether or not we're going to get heart disease. Um, so yeah, but and that's one of them. And then there's, you know, there's, um, you know, probably countless amounts of uh, um, uh, synthetic toxins in our environment, man-made toxins that uh, have only been around for, um, you know, maybe a half century or so or something like that. Um, that our bodies just aren't used to, that can contribute to our, our oxidative stress, heavy metals, things like that, which also has to do with dental health because that's mercury and things like that. Um, but then even, you know, just our, our psychological state, our stress, um, there, are, there are plenty of studies suggesting that just your, how stressed you are can contribute to damage to the lining of the arteries because it increases that amount of oxidative stress. It puts your body in this, this heightened inflammatory state. Um, and, you know, given the I would say unnatural stresses of our, of our modern day world. Um, those things are hard to avoid and we have to work hard to, to uh, mitigate the, the damage from those. But yeah, uh, those are just, you know, some of the main ones that, that can contribute to that oxidative stress that damages the arteries and then causes the body to react by depositing cholesterol and, and minerals and things like that uh, to, to heal it pretty much. Yeah. And I, that's sort of how I've been trained too about what causes heart diseases, you know, cholesterol is just kind of dropping off um, and, you know, being dropped off and supporting the area because there's oxidative stress. So, you know, what is it that causes the oxidative stress? So, you know, your teeth, your guts, um, obviously it's probably some of the foods that we're eating um, that are causing some of that bacteria, but what is it specifically about the food and even about stress that will cause the inflammation? Like what is kind of the science, but not getting too sciencey? Yeah. Yeah. So with, yeah, with diet specifically, um, if we're eating foods that either um, are prone to uh, damage or inflammation when we eat them, like like vegetable oils, very unstable, very easily oxidized, oxidized foods, um, those can contribute to that oxidative stress and inflammation. Um, and then if we're eating a lot of processed carbohydrates, you know, burning through a lot of those carbohydrates, um, studies have shown that, you know, um, using carbohydrates primarily as a fuel source in the cell leads to more free radical production or more oxidative stress production when we eat those foods. And so, um, yeah, so, so what's happening is um, when we get oxidative stress, it's because our body has an excess of what are called free radicals. And free radicals are, um, I, I compare them to like the Looney Tunes Tasmanian devil. Um, so they're like, they're going around and they're, they're just, they're, they're going to do what they're going to do and they're going to cause damage in, in the path of it because they have, um, you know, these molecules like to be paired with electrons and these, and these are unpaired. And so they don't like that. They're very unstable when they're that way. Um, and so they go around searching for this electron and they steal it from anywhere they can. Um, now, typically we're supposed to have antioxidants available around, um, mostly endogenous antioxidants like glutathione um, and superoxide dismutase that, uh, that take care of those. However, if we're doing things that cause this excess of free radicals, we can't make enough antioxidants to take care of that. And we can get this state of what's called oxidative stress. Now, free radicals are not all bad. They act as signaling molecules. There's a reason for them to be there. 
Um, they signal um, a lot of different things within our, our biochemistry that, you know, can signal satiety or non-satiety or, um, or the, the fat cells to be certain ways, uh, insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. So um, they're important, but if we get too many of them, they can cause a lot of issues. And so those are, those are ones that the body can make itself. But then there's also the ones that we get from environment, like potentially like the endotoxins and then the, the synthetic um, chemicals and things that we're exposed to these days, like those things can also contribute. So you can get this kind of storm that happens and then contributes to this oxidative stress that is um, uh, a huge predictor of, of whether or not we're going to get disease of any sort, but especially heart disease. Okay. No, that makes a lot more sense. Um, let's move on to saturated fat. So, you know, a lot of the historical, you know, maybe it started when Eisenhower got a heart attack and then Ansel Keys was like, it's the saturated fats, but why is saturated fats, um, from, you know, butters and steaks, why is it demonized to say that that is what causes heart disease? Um, yeah, the reason is exactly kind of what you alluded to is that, um, the country wanted an answer and Ansel Keys gave them an answer before that answer was well-tested. Uh, and so by the time it was well tested, which even the studies that Anthony Keys did early on didn't show that saturated fat um, was causative in any disease. It actually showed that unsaturated fat like margarine and things was more causative. Um, before that research was done, they had already kind of ran with that theory. And, uh, you know, I guess there was a, some people who had a lot to gain from that theory uh, as far as financially, um, you know, certain food companies and things. And so that idea kind of stuck. Uh, and it kind of came ingrained in, in society, you know, and it was in all the food pyramids and all these um, recommendations from academic institutions and, and government agencies. And so it's just been, you know, it's almost been like we've been brainwashed that that was the case. This is this is bad, you know. But then when you actually look at the science, uh, it doesn't support that at all. Um, there are associational studies that show that maybe um, increase in saturated fat is, is uh um, also uh, causes heart disease, but those are associational um, or increases in red meat um, can cause or are associated with heart disease. Um, but those things, you can't prove causation. And so it was kind of irresponsible of scientists and, and um, you know, people making um, nutrition guidelines to take those studies and use them as uh, to form the recommendations. Uh, and so, but yeah, when you look at the science, um, I mean, there's, there's lots of different angles you could take with this. I mean, if you look at the evolutionary um, uh, approach to it. It makes no sense that a food like saturated fat or red meat that we've been eating for um, the entire time that humans have been on earth is now causing a relatively new epidemic of heart disease um, because heart disease has only increased in the amounts that it's been to um, the amount that it is now for the past, you know, maybe like uh, 80, 90 years, something like that. When we've really started to see the rise, but we've been eating saturated fat for you know, millions of years, if you look at the evolutionary perspective of it. Um, so there's that. Um, but then you look at the science. And uh, like I said, those early studies that even Ansel Keys was, was doing didn't show that there was a correlation between higher rates of heart disease or mortality when people ate higher amounts of saturated fat. Um, and then uh, you can also look at the, the, the very the biochemistry of what happens when you burn saturated fat versus unsaturated fat. Um, and, uh, and it's clear in, in the biochemistry of the cell, like the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain, like the things that happen when we start burning saturated fats that are saturated with hydrogens, um, it's, it's very positive for our metabolism and it creates a state of insulin sensitivity in the, in the peripheral tissues, which is what we want. Um, whereas the, the opposite is true with 
with polyunsaturated fat specifically. Not to say that we shouldn't eat polyunsaturated fat because that's necessary for, for health, but it's just when we get um, the amounts, uh, we get an imbalance and we start eating more polyunsaturated fats than saturated fats, like when the vegetable oil started coming into the diet um, and, uh, and saturated fat was demonized, that's when we get an issue. Um, so, so yeah, it, it makes really no sense. Um, saturated fat is, 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 uh, is absolutely necessary for, for human health. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, because of this message we've gotten, I think a lot of people's health has suffered. Right. And um, it's interesting because I think probably now five years ago, um, the uh, the governmental, I forgot which uh, governing body, but they removed the higher li- limits on cholesterol, right? So they used to say you can only have like one egg every so often. And now they remove that kind of guideline because there was no science backing up that having too much cholesterol is not good for us. Um but they never really kind of announced it. So people still kind of get scared of cholesterol when there is no guideline of upper limits. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the cholesterol. So, you know, given all of the science you just brought up, the comment I just said, why are they still pushing statins, right? It's the number one selling drug. Our brain is made of 60% cholesterol, yet they're pushing a drug that reduces that. And there are even um, studies where they show correlations, and I know it doesn't prove it, but there's correlations where men that are taking statins have more mental issues, depression, anger, violence. Um, and you have to wonder, well, 60% of your brain is cholesterol. And if you're taking statins that remove cholesterol, is it impacting that at all? So what are your thoughts with this whole statins? Is it safe? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'll start by saying that, you know, people should talk to their physician, like don't take, don't not take statins or go off your statin because I say to, or anybody says to talk to your physician, but you bring information to your physician too. Um, because I do think that this is something that, you know, as well versed as they're supposed to be in this topic, um, they may not know all the information, uh, may not be exposed to it uh, on a regular basis. Um, but yeah, so first of all, I'll say that I think that it's, um, incredibly short-sighted and myopic to look at one, um, one biomarker on a blood work panel or one biomarker at all and think that you could say that someone's at higher risk for something because, you know, humans, the natural world, whatever you want to say is incredibly complex. And I don't think we'll ever fully understand it. And I fully accept that. And I think that to think that, you know, we can do some studies, um, and, and find these biochemical pathways and, and affect these things with pharmaceuticals and think that we are kind of mastering human biology or physiology is, uh, is kind of egotistical. And so I think I, I like to say that first because then it gives people, you know, kind of the background and think that, well, we need to look at this cholesterol panel in the context of everything else that's going on in this person's life, not just the rest of the blood work panel, um, but all, you know, other biomarkers we could take um, just the general health of the person, um, you know, how happy they are and all kinds of stuff, because um, that's really the only way we're going to get the true assessment of their health. So, but if we want to talk about specifically cholesterol, um, you know, when I look at a lipid panel, I'm looking at um, more importantly than LDL or total cholesterol, I'm looking at triglycerides and HDL. Um, I want to see that the ratio of those two is, is happy, so to speak, um, a good ratio. And so, um, actually overheard, um, a, uh, a, um, vascular surgeon and a neurologist the other day, um, discussing a, um, a stroke patient that they had. 
and um, they were they were saying that we're gonna they were gonna put them on a statin, put them on blood pressure medications and blood thinners and things like that. And then one of them said, "But his triglycerides were like over a thousand. And they're like, "Do you know how to treat that? I don't know how to treat that." And I was just like, "Oh no! Like you guys don't know how to treat that? Like that's the number one thing we've got to treat for this guy, you know?" Um, and so that's to me, and they didn't know because they didn't have a drug for that. You know, it's not their fault. That's just the way they're trained. And, and right. then when they're trained that they didn't have a drug for that, they didn't know how to treat it. Um, but yeah, so the triglycerides are really important. And the way we correct those is through diet and through creating uh, metabolic health and, and uh, insulin sensitivity um, and that kind of stuff. That's what's going to help us um, get those the triglycerides down. Um, yeah, so that's what I look for there. But then, you know, if I want to assess someone for heart disease, it's more looking at um, you know, insulin levels um, and, uh, inflammation, uh, and that kind of stuff. And we got to look at all that stuff in the context of an entire blood work panel and also looking at heart rate variability and, um, and just all kinds of, uh, psychosocial factors and things that the person's life, you know, that's going to be the, the full picture. And so, you know, people listening to this, if, if, uh, if your doctor takes blood work on you and says, oh, your LDL is high, you're at risk for heart disease and wants to treat just that without telling you anything else about anything, then know that that's short-sighted and there's more to the story there. And, and you need to inquire, look, look further, look deeper um, to figure out what risk you actually do have. Right. And I think the big thing with the cholesterol panel is knowing what diet you're on, right? So if your LDL is really high and you're on a meat-based diet and really no carbohydrates, then maybe that's not a concern, especially if your triglycerides are low. So you just talked about um, looking at kind of um, HDL and triglycerides, like what is a good ratio? And then yeah. um, if you could talk about like, what, why is HDL good and why is LDL bad? And why do we want to keep triglycerides low? Like if you can, you know, just educate. Yeah. Well, you know, supposedly, you know, what we're told, like what I've learned in school is that, that LDL is more atherogenic, meaning that if there's lots of them around, um, then they tend to damage the lining of the artery and, and they get deposited there. Um, but then, you know, there's all these subfractions and, and whether or not it's, it's LP little a or oxidized LDL, like there's all these characteristics of LDL we can assess for. Um, and in my book, I, I, I discuss, you know, something that happens in the body that I think makes it all sort of irrelevant. Um, not necessarily irrelevant, but less relevant, I guess I should say, um, than, than the emphasis that they put on it. Um, but yeah, so LDL is supposedly more atherogenic. HDL is supposed to go around and clean up, you know, more damaged particles, bring them back to the liver so that we don't get those. So it's, it's good. Right. Um, but I don't necessarily think there's any such thing as good versus bad cholesterol. They're all just doing their job, you know, um, and they all have different roles. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so even if you do take all those subfractions of LDL and you say that someone's got really small dense particles, um, and they're more at risk, it's not because of the small dense particles. It's because of what created the small dense particles, which is the things we talked about already, the, the toxins, the stress, the endotoxins, um, all these things that cause inflammation and oxidative stress. Those are the things that are damaging the, the LDL. And it's like the LDL gets blamed because it's there, um, kind of framed a little bit. Uh, and, uh, but really what's causing that damaged LDL is the same thing that's causing damage to the lining of an artery. Um, and the LDL is just present because of what the body uses to almost um, like a spackle to kind of repair that, that damaged artery, you know? Um, so, yeah. And then the whole other conversation is the statin one. And it's, you know, the, if we want to aggressively lower this LDL because it's, 
um, supposedly so causative, um, but there are consequences to that. And, and the very consequences that we see tell us that, okay, this LDL molecule is probably pretty important to the health of our body, right? Because if we start lowering it too aggressively, we start seeing people with cognitive issues. Um, there's, there's evidence that it causes insulin resistance because, you know, one of the steps into making cholesterol that gets blocked with the statin is, uh, is a very important molecule that helps with insulin signaling, um, or with insulin receptors, sorry. And then there's, um, it can deplete our amount of uh, glutathione because there's a certain uh, intermediate in the making of cholesterol that, that helps us make selenoproteins and make antioxidants, things like that. Uh, but then, like you said, you know, with our cognition, um, our brain is made up of a lot of cholesterol. And if we're depriving the body of that, then we can have cognitive issues. Um, there's um, uh, sexual dysfunction because all of our sex hormones are made from cholesterol. So the, the very issues that we see with people who are on aggressive you know, cholesterol-lowering medications tell us how important it is uh, and I think should make us question whether or not that's the correct approach, especially since that's been the approach for the last 60, 70 years at least uh, is to aggressively lower this, this number and heart disease continues to rise. Right. People continue to die of heart attacks. And, and, uh, and it, so obviously that's not doing the trick. We need to look elsewhere. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to ask you, so what, what's the ratio that you would say is ideal? Oh, yeah. Um, the trig to HDL ratio. Uh, so if you take triglycerides divided by HDL, um, you want to, I, I like it to see 1.5 or lower, um, at least. Uh, and so that's kind of, uh, what I use, um, there. And then I also take, um, fasting insulin and multiply that by the blood sugar, calculate the insulin resistance score. And I like that to be 1.5 or lower as well. Okay. Um, those are the two best markers I think of, of metabolic health and, and risk for heart disease. Um, so, we're using the cholesterol panel just in a very different way that a traditional cardiologist or medical practitioner would, would look at it. So would you also consider um, ideally having triglycerides? Um, and if, for the people listening, triglycerides are basically the floating fat in your blood, but would you also want that to be kind of under 100 or does it depend on the diet? Where, where do you stand with that? I'd say definitely under 150, but yeah, under 100 is probably optimal. And um, the other thing is, is to make sure that you're fasting long enough before that blood test, because if you're not, or if you had some sort of digestive issue where it delays digestion or something, then that could, you know, falsely elevate that number for you and, and make you think you're more at risk than you are. Right. Um, I'd, I'd say at least 12 hours is what we want to be fasting, uh, depending on the person. Okay. Um, with all these panels, do you also look at HSCRP, the inflammatory marker, the C-reactive protein? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can look at that or, or GGT, which is a liver enzyme, uh, can give us some indication of how stressed the liver is from oxidative stress and things. Uh, and there's lots of very like, you know, little obscure and, and detailed um, level or um, biomarkers you could take, um, but that gets really expensive. Um, HSCRP is a, is a pretty good one to, to get kind of a baseline inflammation. Okay. Yeah. And for those listening, it's uh, C-reactive protein. Um, so what about... Uh, I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of people with markers in, with high triglycerides, but I've also seen people with really low triglycerides. Um, I, you know, I haven't seen a ton of research on that where like their triglycerides will be in their thirties. Um, is that dangerous? Like, what are your thoughts with that? And they um, eat a meat-based diet. Yeah. Um, it, to me, I, I, yeah, with meat-based diet, that's, that's um, pretty perplexing, you know, um, because you'd think that, you know, 
on that ketogenic type diet, your body's trying to give fatty acids and ketones and things. Um, so there'd be more fatty acids in the blood to deliver those, you know, um, that energy, you know? Uh, so it, when they're low like that, um, it, to me, that could mean that the body's really good at using ketones and doesn't need the amount of fatty acids there available to use those for, for burning energy for the cells. Um, it, that's what it would mean to me because it, the body's got to have some sort of fuel source. Um, or it could be that they're, they're very metabolically healthy and that, um, the amount of, the amount of fatty acids that are, um, uh, so when everybody, when anybody, you know, depending on their genetics reaches their fat threshold, their, um, cause everybody's a little different, which is why some very skinny people could be, you know, insulin resistant. Um, and you know, someone who's overweight could still not be insulin resistant because they haven't met their fat threshold yet. But when you meet that, um, fatty acids kind of start spilling out of the fat cells into the bloodstream. Um, and so that's, you know, that when I think triglycerides, I'm thinking, oh, free fatty acids, those types of things, that's what we're measuring. Um, and, uh, and so if someone has really low ones, then they're not anywhere near that fat threshold. Um, and so I would say that they're really metabolically healthy. Um, and, and ideally if they're, they're really low, the body's saying we don't need as many, uh, as much to deliver energy. So because we're probably using ketones a lot. Yeah. And that makes sense. The person is pretty thin that, um, I think there was two people uh, two of my clients that had really low and they are very, they're, um, they're on the thinner side, they work out. So it makes a lot of sense with what you're saying. Um, you know, with the thoughts of like having to, uh, once your kind of cells are done and they start spilling out into the blood with that logic, do you feel that certain people maybe should not eat as much fat just genetically, or do you think it doesn't matter? And I'm only asking this because I do have clients that stop eating carbohydrates. And it's not that their triglycerides are really out of range, though, it'll be closer to 9900. That's good. I'd like to see it, you know, no more than 100, especially on a carnivore diet, but they kind of slowly gain weight, and they're not really eating carbohydrates, um, but they're eating a lot of fat. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I know that's not really as related to heart disease, but yeah, um, no, I mean, I think it's totally related to heart disease if we're, if we're talking about assessment for it. But in that case, if they're slowly putting on weight, it, it could be a situation where it is like a calorie issue because I, you know, in general, I'm not a fan of like calories in calories out and that kind of stuff, but, but calories matter. Um, but yeah, yeah, they do. And, and, and so on people like this, that's one strategy is to limit calories uh, and go higher protein uh, and see how that does for them. But the other aspect is, is that, you know, um, I think that, you know, we often think that heart or not heart disease, but weight uh, is, is all about um, the calories or, or diet, you know, and, and it's not necessarily um, because, you know, if you are in a high stress state, then your body is not thinking about losing weight. It's not thinking about metabolism in general. Um, and so if you're, if you go on that carnivore diet, you're eating way more fat. Um, and then you're also super stressed, then yeah, your body may be not metabolizing that fat the way it should be. Um, and you end up storing some, right. Um, same thing with toxin, uh, toxins. So like fat cells are, I kind of think of them as the body's like garbage can or waste. So if there's too much of something, it gets rid of it. If there's too many toxins, it stores it in fat cells. If there's too many, too much energy stores it in fat cells. Um, and so lots of times if we, you know, we go on this diet, that's pretty efficient at mobilizing fat. Um, uh, and, uh, and we start doing that toxins come out as well. Uh, and so if the body, if like say the liver is struggling or something, we haven't addressed that, 
or they are really stressed and they can't deal with those toxins, your body just halts weight loss, sometimes even makes it go backwards. It says, no, put this back in the cells, you know, and you start gaining weight. Um, and so there's all these different things that can play out, um, which is why it's not just about diet. I've had clients too and patients that, uh, that, you know, they either stall or they go the opposite direction of what they want. And we have to say, okay, well, you know, we've, uh, we've addressed the metabolic health. Now we've got to address the other things, right. um, which is harder or easier said than done. Yeah, no, no, totally. I mean, I think one thing is, you know, we are living in a much more stressed state. Um, I think we have notched up in stress and we consider this normal now. And I've been really sharing that we need to reduce our stress because I'm seeing a lot of people heal their gut. Uh, Lots of, you know, like you're saying, metabolic syndrome healed all these things. And then there's like a little bit that they still need to heal. And it's maybe trauma from the past or just stressors that they have in their lives. And then a lot of the comments are, well, I can't change my job. Well, I can't do this. So I have to kind of live with that. But I see it affect people's health. And it's more than I think what people realize. I mean, one thing is that our bodies produce cortisol, which manages stress through fat, right? So I can see why our body will hold on to more because it's a protective mechanism to hopefully even have more um, fuel to produce cortisol. But you know, what are some ways that we can manage stress? Or, I mean, what have you seen with your clients that, you know, had uh, lots of stress or their liver, their detox pathways weren't as healthy? Like what were some kind of tips that you did to see finally maybe some weight loss happen some, or just in general healing happen to the body? Yeah. Um, so to preface this, so when we think about stress, we're, we're talking about the autonomic nervous system, which is the system in your body that's perceiving your environment through your senses, and then telling your body, are we in a safe or threatening situation? Uh, and then the body reacts accordingly. Uh, and so, you know, this day and age, especially with humans and our big brains, we're like the only species that has the ability to literally think ourselves into a stress response. We don't have to have anything life-threatening happening to us. We could think our way into that situation. Um, we could see somebody across the world have something stressful happen to them and then fear it's going to happen to us or have something stressful happen to us. And instead of you know, getting over it with a day or two, we think about it for a month or a year. Um, and so we can set ourselves up for these types of issues. And so if your body is, is chronically, but incorrectly getting signals that uh, you're in a life threatening situation, um, then it's, it's not thinking about things like digestion um, or detoxification or procreation or sleeping or anything like that, um, or even metabolism. It's not thinking about metabolizing anything. And so people who can be stuck in the stress state can see things like insomnia or sexual dysfunction um, or poor or slow metabolism or digestive issues, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so it's really important that we, we learn how to, um, as best we can, mitigate these things. And, and again, it's easier said than done. This is, the, this is the thing I struggle with the most, you know, I, admittedly. Uh, it's, it's really hard to get a hold of this, um, but it's really important. And so I think that um, you know, there's all kinds of, of ways that, you know, you can read articles all over the internet that say increase your parasympathetic nerve or, or decrease your stress. And you get all the, the usual things like yoga and meditation and nature exposure and, and laughter and time with friends and all that kind of stuff. And all that stuff is really important. Um, but I also think it's very important to identify what types of stress, um, especially personally to the individual, are causing the most damage. And so when you look at the research, um, you know, there's a few studies I'll, I'll talk about. One is 
they looked at people in a, in their in a work environment, a certain work environment, a certain company, um, and they found that the people who um, had the the highest demand jobs um, and were the most busy and had the most quote unquote stress um, also had the lowest amount of health effects from the stress. However, they found that the people who had the amounts of stress that were types of stress that they couldn't control. So like job security um, or, or um, uh, how much they made or things like that, things that were out of their control, that was the most stressful and had the most damage to, or caused the most damage to health. These people had the worst health outcomes. So, so being stressed and being busy is not necessarily detrimental if you, if you thrive on that stress, right. you know, okay. but if you feel like you're out of control, um, or, or if, so, you know, I think about the last year, uh, and what's happened in the world and how people have felt out of control. It's no wonder that we're seeing, you know, increased, um, um, uh, rates of, you know, mental health disorders and, and things like that. Stress induced cardiomyopathy, that kind of stuff has all increased because people have felt so out of control. Right. Um, so it's important to realize that. Um, so if you have stresses in your life that, uh, that, um, you feel like you can't control, or make you feel out of control. Those stresses make you feel like you can't control or out of control. Um, those are the ones you need to see if you can um, either change your perspective of or eliminate those stresses somehow. Sometimes you can't. Um, but uh, but yeah. And then the other study is one um, along the same lines where they, they interviewed people and they asked them how many stressful events they had in the past year, like major stressful events, like loss of a loved one, um, various things like that, loss of a job, whatever. Um, and uh, they found that the, uh, there was a direct correlation to how many stressful events people reported and, and um, their health outcomes, poor health outcomes, or even death in the future. Um, and, but however, they also asked the people if they felt that stress was damaging to their health. And so whenever they, people reported that they didn't feel that stress was damaging to their health, the correlation went completely away, all the way down to zero. Wow. So it's interesting, um, and it's just associational studies, but it's interesting that um, it's almost like those people, you know, had those stressful things happen to them, but they had control over it in their mind, you know? And so it was the people that didn't have control over it that, that we saw the poor health outcomes with stress. So um, it, oftentimes it is our perception of the stress that's happening to us. Um, and then the other advice I give is, is to do something like either neurofeedback or um, tracking your heart rate variability um, so that you can kind of get a sense of what things in your life are happening to you that are creating that stress, you know, because you can, your mind can override things. Um, and I always give the example of like walking down the street in New York city and there's just all of these noises, horns honking, and our, our minds can override that. But when our body hears those unnatural things, it has a stressful response to it, whether or not we, we react, you know, with our mind. Um, and so neurofeedback and heart rate variability can tell us or clue us into the things that are actually causing our physiology to have a stressful response. Um, and again, it, it's likely to be those stresses that we feel like we can't control um, or that make us feel like our life is out of control. Um, and, but that can be very informative because then you know which stresses to go and focus on um, and, and, and try and, and mitigate or change your perspective of or something. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. I mean, I always talk about lowering stress to my clients <clears throat> and I give them, you know, options like, you know, do breathing like right before you eat because you need your gut, your digestive process to be in a parasympathetic state 
you want to do breathing exercises to kind of force it. But if you think about the bigger picture, it makes so much sense that it's really the, you know, like um, imminent death that's going to happen to someone that's in the family that um, has like cancer or something. Those are things that are out of our control. We can't time the death. We can't try to eradicate it. And so I think those stresses, and I see it in my clients, all of a sudden they regress in their health because they're all of a sudden um, taking care of somebody. But even in my corporate world, it makes so much sense because a lot of my like directors and you know the people that were really stressed afterward, they would, I guess, try to manage that stress by going out and drinking or they were addicted to some other type of addiction. And it makes a lot of sense because that's how they're just kind of dealing with it. But it's because they can't manage that stress. And a lot of them were, you know, slowly overweight. They were just, you know, having other health issues. And so it's interesting when you feel like you're not in control, that's when things can spiral. And I see it in um, even the way that we have internal scripts, right? So when we have a stressor, how do we handle that stressor? And like you're saying, it goes back to what you're saying that'll affect a lot of how we actually deal with that stress. And so it's fascinating. It's not the total stress you have, but the way you're dealing with it and the kinds that make you feel out of control. And that's a huge difference. That's pretty cool. Um, So, you know, what, you know, you mentioned there are also toxins in the environment, but we didn't talk about specific ones. Are there any ones that you're like, yeah, you got to stop doing that. Right. So one I interviewed, um, Dr. J a long time ago, and he talks about lavender oil, essential oils being uh, very estrogenic. Um, You know, we also talk about plastics. Is there some specifically that you have seen that's probably not ideal to have in yours, like daily life? Yeah, I think that uh, two that I'll highlight here, one is like a a group of them, and that's heavy metals. Um, So these are things like, um, or just, I guess, metals, they're not all heavy metals, but, um, you know, aluminum, mercury, cadmium, arsenic, uh, lead, those types of things, which we find a lot in our environments these days. Um, so it's, you really have to kind of be diligent about finding out the sources of those things and limiting them when you can, but not freaking out and overstressing about the ones you can't control, right? Because there's nothing you can do about them. Just do the best you can about the other ones. Um, and so, you know, common sources of mercury are, you know, the, the higher mercury fish, you know, um, and so you can kind of look up which which fish are higher in mercury and which aren't. Um, generally, the generally smaller fish are are better, um, but salmon's also a good one. Um, but there's you know there's uh, mercury amalgams in people's mouths, um, which are still being put in, not as commonly as they were, but they are still allowed to be put in, which I think is crazy. Oh wow, I didn't know that. I thought they stopped it in the nineties or something. Oh, wow. I didn't know. Yeah. I, I, I thought that too, but I learned that um, at least from my most recent knowledge that they are still allowed to be put in if, if that it's what the dentist wants to do. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so there's that um, there's, you know, everything from, you know, aluminum cans, aluminum foil, like all these things um, end up in our food or in our environments uh, and uh, you know, cadmium, uh, mainly cigarette smoke. So if you're, in the place, uh, if you're smoking in general, but also if you're in a place where people smoke a lot, then you get exposed to cadmium. Um, arsenic can actually be quite high in, in things like rice. Um, and so we just have to be conscious of these things and learn about where we're being exposed to them um, and so that we, we can mitigate them. And then also make sure we're doing our best to help our body get rid of them as well. Um, so making sure that we're doing things to help produce glutathione, which is going to help get rid of those. Um, so like I 
automatically go to collagen protein. You know, we want to be getting those amino acids to help us produce glutathione, um, but also cholesterol, you know, the selenoproteins that, that help us do that. Um, but also sweating, super important uh, for getting rid of those things. Um, um, and so, so yeah, so there's heavy metals. And then the other one, I think uh, that's incredibly uh, scary is, is uh, glyphosate, um, which oh. is a, um, which is an herbicide uh, made by, um, which was Monsanto, now it's Bayer, uh, that's sprayed on lots of crops. Um, and so, uh, and even, even if they don't necessarily help the crop, like with wheat, they spray it on at the end to kind of dry it up and increase the yield and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the best, I guess the, it's hard to avoid because it's everywhere now. And like Dr. Stephanie Sniff's talked a lot about this. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to avoid, but the, the best thing you can do is, you know, eat organic, um, because then at least that, you know, uh, there's no GMO, so they can't spray glyphosate on that. Um, doesn't mean it's free of toxins. Right. Uh, it just means that it's probably less and there's, uh, no GMO, no glyphosate. Um, doesn't mean that it wasn't, you know, right next to a field that was sprayed with glyphosate, you know, so it's, it's, it's hard to really know, but I do know that. Uh, as far as ruminants go, they tend not to bioaccumulate this stuff right. in in their tissues. So, you know, if we want to eat a food that we we can, uh, you know, guarantee is going to have less, if any, glyphosate, then a ruminant animal is probably one because these uh, glyphosate will affect them negatively, um, just like it will affect us negatively if we if we're exposed to it. Um, however, it doesn't tend to bioaccumulate. So, when we're eating that food we know we're not getting this huge dose of glyphosate, you know? Right. Um, but it's, it's concerning because, you know, it's in, it's, uh, it's now in the, the uh, fuel we use for our cars because they put corn, uh, ethanol, you know, in the, in the fuel. And so then, you know, does that mean that it's coming out of our exhaust and it's all in the air? Like it's, it's, uh, it's worrisome. And so the more that we vote to not have glyphosate by buying organic and, and, uh, and avoiding it any way that we can, you know, we're telling big companies we don't want it. We don't want their product if it has it in it. So, um, so yeah, those are those are two that are extreme, extremely damaging heavy metals and glyphosate that uh, that um, can cause that oxidative stress and and those toxins that we're we're talking about. Yeah, it's really scary. I wrote a whole chapter on GMOs and glyphosate. Um, I used to drive from Los Angeles to Berkeley and there's this whole area that has just uh, factory farming. And I used to think it was so bad because that's when I was plant-based and I was like, look at the pollution, look at the smell in this area. And then as I did the research on GMOs, it's just so scary how prevalent pervasive uh, glyphosate is everywhere. I mean, we can even do our own by not buying Roundup, right? Spraying it on our yards, the half-life of glyphosate is like weeks. And so when your kids then stomp on the yards, they're breathing in Roundup, which is glyphosate. And it's so scary because it's everywhere. Um, and it's in our waters. Like you said, it's probably coming out of our exhaust. And and then people will say, well, your animals that you're eating that are not grass fed, they're also eating a lot of that. But like you said, it doesn't accumulate. And that was one argument I made in the book is that I think it's actually safer to eat, um, you know, these uh uh, farm farm factory animals versus eating like just standard GMO uh, vegetables because of what we're talking about. We don't have that kind of intermediary protection of like eating the animal that ate it, but not eating the direct plant that is so toxic to our health. Definitely. Um, and I mean, it's not even correlation. There's proven studies where 
it causes cancer. And it's so, so scary. I mean, um, so what would you say is an ideal diet then for heart disease? Um, I think that it has to meet a few criteria. One, um, that it creates metabolic health, um, meaning, and I, I kind of described that as your body's metabolizing your food in a way that doesn't harm you. Um, uh, and so it has to create that, which in general uh, is a diet of whole foods. That's, that's probably the best bet, the best like one line statement I could give to create metabolic health is, is whole foods. Um, for some people, it's a little more difficult than that, but generally that's, yeah. Um, and so, you know, animal foods are probably the, the best whole foods that I know of, uh, in my opinion, um, depending on the animal food, I guess. But uh, yeah, so it has to be that. It has to be a diet that um, doesn't produce oxidative stress and inflammation. Um, and so again, that goes to, to whole foods because the processed foods are the ones that, like we talked about, create that excess free radicals or, or the vegetables become damaged when they get in the body um, and create the, contribute to that oxidative stress. Um, so again, it, it's the whole foods. And then also um, we want to eat a diet that also creates balance in our autonomic nervous system. Um, and there is, it's not as strong for the other as it is for the other two, but um, there is some evidence that, you know, the processed carbohydrates, um, the, the, the high sugars, the vegetable oils do, you know, stimulate the sympathetic nervous system causing or, or contributing to imbalance um, in that. And so, so that's kind of like my three-pronged approach to heart disease. And so anything that I do, whether it's diet or any kind of lifestyle thing, I want to make sure that it's assessing one or two or all of those imbalances, because those are the imbalances I think create all chronic disease, but specifically heart disease. Um, and so there's actually um, one study um, that looked at I think it was like, I think they gave people heavy cream as a drink and they gave people like a fruit juice of some sort. And uh, the people who had the fruit juice, uh, you know, the high fructose fruit juice, um, it stimulated their sympathetic nervous system way more than the heavy cream uh, versus control. So um, pretty interesting to, to see that kind of stuff. doesn't mean that that's the, that, that alone is going to cause an imbalance in your autonomic nervous system, but it clearly has an effect. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that there are diets out there now that's saying we need little bits of sugar um, to balance our cortisol. But that just that study alone is sharing. Actually, it kind of causes more cortisol. So yeah, it's just wild. Um, uh, but one thing I want to bring up is, so you keep bringing up antioxidants. So we all think naturally antioxidants equals fruit, right? So can you talk about maybe how antioxidants, the best source isn't always getting it from fruits yeah yeah i think that for me the jury's out on this like people are told you know curcumin and fruits and all this kind of stuff that give you more antioxidants and you know from studies i've seen there's there's definitely reason to call that into question uh, on this well not that they're antioxidants but that they have any effect okay. on our state of oxidative stress you know um because there's there's studies that show people who ate more of these antioxidant rich foods or, or took more of this supplement or whatever, it had no effect. Um, and so when I think of, you know, the burden of what we call oxidative stress, that's, that's produced for an, an, a large part in the cell, mm -hmm. right? So it's, if we're burning the wrong fuels, um, if we have these very um, pro-inflammatory fuels like vegetables, polyunsaturated fats, and we're burning lots of those, and then we're making lots of oxidative stress or free radicals from those, um, 
then that's going to damage the sale because it's all happening right there. So in my head, I want to, instead of taking in these antioxidants externally that, like I said, may or not be do, may or may not be doing anything. Um, I want to increase the production of the antioxidants that are made right there in my cells so that when this happens in the cell, they're right there to take care of it. Right. Um, and so that would be the endogenous antioxidants, the ones made in the cell, like glutathione, superoxide, dismutase. And um, to me, those are things like um, creating some, some uh, I would say, some uh, common sense or logical um, uh, hormetic stresses, which you know, gives a little bit of stress to your body so that it makes more glutathione in response. So that could be things like exercise or um, hot cold therapy or, or ketosis or whatever. So it's those types of things, but then also getting your body the right nutrients so that it can make those endogenous antioxidants. And so I kind of touched on those earlier. Um, we want to have, you know, plenty of cholesterol synthesis happening. We don't want to block that process with a statin um, because some of those intermediates are important for uh, important components of making those antioxidants, the selenoproteins. Um, but we also want to be giving the right amino acids. Um, and so, which is why I think that things like collagen protein, connective tissue protein is important because it has a, a slightly different um, uh, amounts of certain amino acids. Um, uh, and so, and those amino acids um, are what um, are kind of like the backbone for some of these antioxidants. And there's, there's interesting studies that show that, um, you know, the one I'm thinking of is in rats, not in humans, but um, when they gave them these connective tissue proteins, the glutathione went way up, way up. Um, and so um, I talk about those in my book, but, um, but yeah, so that's the kind of approach I want. Let's stimulate your body's ability to make these antioxidants because they're going to be right there ready to help rather than hoping that the ones we take internally, um, you know, through diet or through supplements, which may or may not be doing anything, get there and actually have an effect. Yeah. And it's fascinating because um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but glutathione is produced by three different amino acids. It's not from fruit. Right. And um, mm. I also remember learning that uh, blueberries, I know where they're known for their antioxidant benefits, but they're actually a toxin in our body. And then it stimulates glutathione to be produced because right. of toxins. So it's just funny that people think, oh no, blueberries are so good. They're antioxidants, but it's actually not. Let me shift gears a little bit. And then let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, calcium buildup in the arteries. So if someone mm. gets their calcium score and it shows like there's some um, buildup there, is there any way, I mean, obviously we can change our diet and help reduce that, reduce the stress, reduce the toxins. But if there was any prior, is there any way to remove some of that through all of um, it? Yeah, I think so. Just, you know, mainly from the fact that we see people who have CAC scores, which is a measure of um, uh, calcified plaque um, in the arteries. We see that that gets reduced. Um, okay. You know, okay. If, they, if they take it, you know, years later after making lifestyle changes, um, there are, there are cardiologists I've heard that say you can't reverse that, but okay. I've seen it, you know, I've seen people or, or had people tell me, um, that that was the case. So, so yeah. And so then you have to wonder like how they do that, you know? And so the first line of defense, I think is stop creating the inflammation and oxidative stress we've talked about that perpetuates and continues that, uh, damage to the lining of the artery that would then trigger the body to, deposit the cholesterol on there that eventually gets calcified if it's been there long enough because um, lots of calcium and other minerals get deposited there. Um, but then also making sure we have enough uh, nutrients um, and I would say enzymes um, to help break up some of that 
that old atherosclerosis there. Um, so, uh, you know, the enzymes, I specifically, I think of one called serapeptase um, that's been shown to help, you know, um, dissolve plaques and, and things like that. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and then the, for nutrients, it's, it's largely about vitamin K2 um, because vitamin K2, um, it's, uh, it, it's one of its jobs is uh, to make sure that minerals end up where they're supposed to go. Right. Um, and so that means into the bone, right? And so if we don't have enough K2, um, sometimes we can get minerals deposited in lots of different areas, you know, um, and including arteries, um, but lots of things can calcify, you know, that happens lots of places in the body. Uh, but yeah, we want that K2 um, and uh, we want the, and, and there's actually evidence to show that vitamin K2 um, can actually prevent the, the uh, formation of atherosclerosis and calcium buildup through the GLA matrix protein and everything um, through stimulation of that. Uh, and so when we look at where we get K2, because people think, oh, I get vitamin K and kale, you know, and, uh, and that's usually K1, or it is K1. And uh, K2 largely comes from animal foods. Um, you can get it from like fermented soy, but who wants to eat that anyways, you know, uh, it probably tastes pretty bad. But, um, but yeah, so uh, we want, we're talking about things like egg yolks and bone marrow and, and, and uh, liver and things like that. Like those are uh, great sources of vitamin K2. And so when we look at what people have been told, which is those foods are evil, you know, and they're going to cause heart disease. So people are not eating those foods as much. And then we see this, you know, uh, this explosion of atherosclerosis. Well, maybe it's because we have this widespread K2 deficiency um, Mm -hmm. within our society. Um, So, yeah, I think that it can definitely be reversed. It's just a matter of lowering that inflammation and then getting the right things in the body that can help it work through that and, and heal that artery. What about the um, enzyme that you said, the serapeptase? Is there any way that we can increase it? Is there foods that we can eat that will support that? Is, um, or is it just reducing the inflammation? Um, yeah, so the first line is the reducing inflammation. And this, is, this enzyme is not necessarily in a food. It's, it's kind of, uh, this is what I would use. It's kind of a response to the amount of atherosclerosis we see. Um, and, uh, and I use it um, to help, uh, you know, break up uh, clots and, and also... Um, or I guess the, the um, tendency to clot, um, but also old atherosclerosis as your body's cleaning that up, it can help clear it out. And it's made from the, uh, um, it's extracted from a silkworm. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it's clearly something uh, that uh, I don't think that we need to get lots of, you know, if we're healthy, but this is just, I use it in people who are struggling with that type of stuff and we can, and we can use that to help them uh, along with all the other changes we want to make to get rid of that atherosclerosis or or encourage it to break down. Yeah. And I think all of these are kind of benefits in the, I guess, intermediary, but they're really band-aids if you don't fix the inflammation, Mm. the lifestyle, the diet, the stress, et cetera. Yeah. Thoughts on salt and blood pressure. You know, there's that whole thought where salt, um, well, I know it's managed by aldosterone, but salt will affect your blood pressure, higher blood pressure, risk of heart disease. Yeah. Um, yeah, in my book, I have a whole um, chapter on high blood pressure, and I do talk about salt in it. But my main point, um, you know, with all the explanation I go through in it, my main point is that I do not think that high blood pressure is causative in any of the uh, uh, issues that it's associated with, um, like like higher heart attacks or strokes or, or whatever. Um, I think that the same things that are causing high blood pressure are the things that are making those other things happen. 
And so again, high blood pressure is just another result of the insulin resistance or the inflammation or the imbalance in our autonomic nervous system that's creating the high blood pressure. Um, And so, uh, so yeah, then, you know, you get the whole issue of how people are, we've been told that salt causes high blood pressure. And the idea behind that is that, you know, when your body wants to um, hold on to minerals, uh, you know, sodium, potassium, all kinds of different things. Uh, when it wants to do that, they, those minerals have to be dissolved in fluid. Um, and so the body has to hold on to fluid, like in the kidneys, it has to kind of draw those minerals back in through holding on to fluid. And so the thought is, is that, you know, the more fluid we're holding on to, um, you, you know, the more pressure we're going to create in our blood because there's more fluid there. And the, you know, the, it's just more full, just like, you know, more pressure in a hose or whatever. And so that's going to cause high blood pressure. Um, but when you, when you look at the, the studies, there's not many that really support that as far as um, um, increased amounts of salt intake um, and forcing the body to hold on to those things, hold on to those minerals and increasing blood pressure. Um, there's a lot of studies associated with insulin resistance and high blood pressure, which makes me want to think that's more the cause. Um, but there's even one particular study that I can think of um, off the top of my head where they, they gave uh, these patients with, with heart failure. So who were, you know, had heart failure, were accumulating fluid in various places in their body, um, edema type things. And, uh, and they gave one of them just a diuretic um, and they gave the other one uh, a diuretic and um, uh, a saline solution. Mm-hmm. And they were expecting that the saline solution would, you know, you know, um, uh, negatively affect the diuretic and they wouldn't lose as much fluid. However, the ones with the saline solution lost more fluid. Oh. Um, and so to me, that means that, so since our body likes to hold on to minerals because it uses them for things, right. if we don't have enough minerals in our body, like we're not getting enough salt, your body's trying to hold on to more fluid because it's holding on to more minerals, right? Whereas if we provide the body with enough minerals through our diet, like sea salt and, and things like that, then the body's saying, oh, we're getting more of this, we're getting plenty of it, we can let go of the fluid, we can let go a little bit of, a little bit of minerals, right? Um, and so we're able to get rid of some of that fluid as well. Uh, so it's kind of backwards from what we've been told. Um, and, and that's just one study, it doesn't prove it, but based on all the evidence with blood pressure and, and, and salt, it, it just doesn't make sense that, that salt would be that bad for us. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's very counterintuitive where you're, you know, kind of swelling, you might have um, inflammation or it feels like inflammation, but it's really just maybe water retention. And some of my clients will try a little bit of the salt as counterintuitive and then they'll feel better. So it's really interesting mm-hmm. and it makes sense of what you're saying. So why do people then feel like, because there are people in the meat-based uh, community that feel like when they add salt, they just feel worse. And if we need salt, why do they feel that? Um, it's hard to say. I think that everybody's a little different, but it could be that, you know, and these were, this is where genetics, I think does matter a little bit um, because some people could just be really um, good at maintaining that, that uh, electrolyte fluid balance. Mm-hmm. And so when they add more, the body's like, well, we've already got enough. Like, and so they, maybe it makes them feel bad or maybe it messes with that balance. Whereas other people, um, especially those with maybe poor kidney function, um, need to replace more of that salt um, that they're potentially losing through the poor kidney function, um, which could be just a genetic thing, or it could be that they've done damage to their kidneys, you know. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it, it's it, it's definitely a trial and error thing, you know. And I think that that is uh, 
really important to understand is that these these guidelines, these rules that we all set for everything could be slightly different for, for everybody individually. Not because not because we're all uh, completely different physiologically, because um, for the most part, I think that you know, we're we're uh, we all have the same kind of physiologic mechanisms, but we all experience different things throughout our lives. Um, you know, you know, we're born, how we're raised, everything we encounter. And so that's, has, um, I think as much to do with who we become and how our physiology works as what the genes we're born with were. Yeah, no, that's really powerful. So where can people find your book? Um, you know, I have it here. I haven't fully read it yet, but I, I mean, some of the questions I asked you were from the book and it's pretty powerful. Um, I'm you know, really looking forward to reading it and there's even graphs and, you know, explanations. It seems like it's a, you know, pretty easy read to understand more of the heart and the complications around it. So where can people find it? Um, right now, the only place is Amazon okay. uh, and it's in uh, paperback and in um, um, ebook. Uh, but I am in talks with publishers so there may be a point where it's available other places. Um, there may actually be a time where it's not available while I'm working with the publisher to get that back up and running. So if people go and look for it and it's not there, um, then that may be the case. Uh, but right now, yeah, Amazon is the place to find it. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my website has links to that, which is resourcerhealth.com. And, uh, yeah, people can, can find me in it there. Okay. And are you planning on, because um, I, and I'm only asking you because I got a ton of these questions myself, but are you planning on making an audiobook? Uh, yes. Well, if, if I go with the publisher, yes. Oh, okay. Um, cause they're going to help me do that. Right. Whereas, you know, um, if I, if I stay self-published, then yeah, I'm going to look into that. Um, but it's just a, it's a matter of how well the book does, I guess. Yeah. Um, as to whether I, I put in the effort to, to do that, but, but yeah, so if thing goes, goes well with the publisher and I sign up, then yeah, that's coming. Okay. So, you know, as we're wrapping up, um, what would you say are kind of the biggest points that you would say for heart health that you should do? Is it the diet? Is it the, you know, the kind of managing of stress, um, the toxins? I mean, I know it's kind of a blend of everything, but what would be mm-hmm. your simple tips for somebody to just get started? Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of emphasis is put on diet because of, you know, the, the, um, the association with cholesterol and all this kind of stuff, or I guess the attention that's drawn by cholesterol. But the more and more I look at things, uh, the more I uncover, I, I think that imbalance in our autonomic nervous system, imbalance in our stress response is, you know, I hesitate to say it, but I think the main driver of, of most of the issues we see with, with heart disease. Um, and these other things, you know, the oxidative stress and inflammation and the, and the metabolic health and all that kind of stuff are definitely complicating factors for sure. Um, but I think that, yeah, the more and more I uncover it, and it's also the most, um, most ignored, you know, aspect of, of the heart, which I think is crazy to me because, we're the ones that say, I love you with all my heart, or I gave it all my heart. We're the ones who associate this, our emotional state, our stress response with the heart. You know, we, we subconsciously do that. Um, and you know, the, the, um, the vagus nerve, which communicates the autonomic nervous system signal is, is highly, uh, or the heart is highly innervated by that nerve. And most of the signals that the heart, um, the, the, most of the signals that are communicated between that go from the heart to the brain. Um, not the other way around. 
Um, and so it's clear that the brain is interpreting our emotional state, um, you know, by how we're feeling uh, through our heart, you know. And so it's, uh, it, it's curious, but I think it's very, very important that we pay attention to that more um, and through all the things that we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's really good. Um, I think it's very powerful. So thank you. Um, so where can people find you other than the book? But like, are you social media? Yeah, yeah. So my website is resourcerhealth.com. Um, and then I'm on social media. Um, uh, it's just uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. Okay. And I'll link to everything um, in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining me. This has been so good. And it just, um, to me personally, it just refines to me that we really, really need to manage stress and how it affects the autonomic nervous system and that it's not just diet, right? It's holistic health. It's covering everything and making sure that, you know, we're not just eating whole foods, but the plant foods of just GMO or something like that. So it's just Mm -hmm. the blend of everything. So thank you. um, And thank you just for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Okay, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this uh, interview. Dr. Stephen Hussey is just a great person. I hope that you read through the book and you learn a lot about heart health and what it all entails and that diet is not the only thing that we need to work on to have better health. And it's just really about holistic health. It also includes gut health, removing toxins, eating animal-based proteins, and a bunch of other things. I hope that you have learned that you know there's a lot of things we need to work on Um, but not get stressed about it and not try to live perfection to get to better health. There are just so many things and we are sometimes looking so myopically into just diet or into just this or that. And we need to look at our health and our environment and our wellness in a holistic sense. Yeah, I hope you guys get the book. If you enjoy it, just tag me on social media and let me know if you enjoyed the book and we'll make sure to share. All right, guys, you know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. And if you like this video or podcast, please make sure to share with somebody that needs to hear this about heart health. All right, guys, I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and The Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.